0: So we've just, we've just heard that passage. We'll come back to it as we speak. Nicodemus is an interesting character. I don't know if any of you are into The Chosen, the series um, about the life of Jesus that's busy unfolding at the moment. There's different views on it. Um, but generally speaking, I think it's a lovely depiction of some of the characters and, uh, around Jesus and, uh, and also of the things that he did. And Nicodemus uh, in that series is depicted as someone who's got a real hunger for God. Nicodemus, just to give you a bit of background, was a senior Pharisee. But he knew there was something more, otherwise he wouldn't have come to Jesus. He had a lot to lose. He was taking his reputation, or, or, or sort of sacrificing his reputation almost, or putting it in danger by coming to see Jesus, because Jesus was not at all um, a friend of the Pharisees, of course. But he was interested in Jesus, and we know that he was interested because he came to talk to him about the things he'd been saying. Um, and he came at night, he came in secret. Uh, Nicodemus appears later uh, in the Gospels when uh, we see him and Joseph of Arimathea taking Jesus' body, a much more public thing, and taking it to Joseph's tomb, to be laid in Joseph's tomb. So we know that he did become a follower of Jesus. And Jesus senses in this man a hunger to know more about God, a hunger for the kingdom of God. And it's just lovely. And and he gets just cut straight through everything and says, you must be born again. Uh, I have to say, I've seen uh, girls like that um, at Somerville. Uh, it's a it's a lovely thing when you see someone and you just know that God is touching them. God is at work in their life. And I've seen that. I remember a girl when she was in year nine in my first year at Somerville. And there was just something about her attentiveness and the questions that she was asking. And I thought, God is at work here. And uh, sure enough, she ended up becoming a Christian a couple of years later. And uh, the other day I had dinner with her. She's now a psychologist with a PhD. And, uh, and she's going on with the Lord and very involved in, in church here in Brisbane. So just fantastic to see that. I've got one right now um, in my class, and uh, it's just lovely to see uh, God at work in her and the path that she's taking to come to know him. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And of course, that quite confuses him. Well, I've already—you know, How can I go back in my mother's womb and be born again? Um, and Jesus talks about being born of both water and the Spirit. Now, I've heard different interpretations of this. I've heard that interpreted as being a reference to water baptism and baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and the other common interpretation is that it's war- uh, born of water, as in a natural birth, because of course a woman's waters break uh, when they're giving birth to, before they give birth to a child, uh, and then being born of the spirit. And you may have um, heard the, the saying um, if you are born just once, uh, you'll die twice, but if you're born twice, you'll only, only die once. I think that's quite a clever little expression when we talk about these kind of things. And I want to talk to you a little bit about being born again. It's a concept, you know, we're, we're some, sometimes uh, almost accused of being born again Christians, those born again Christians. You've probably heard it said in that kind of a tone. But uh, all Christians, all genuine Christians have been born again. Um, and I want to talk to you a little bit about that today. It's, it's a concept that isn't mentioned a lot in the scriptures, but obviously very important. Um, We have some fairly, um, there's two different journeys, I think, in terms of becoming a Christian and being born again. And I'm sure amongst those of us here today, there are, uh, well, there's many different journeys, really, but two sort of basic strands, I find. Um, One is where uh, you've sort of been brought up, perhaps, and you've lived your life, particularly in these days, without much knowledge of God, with very little background, and a very little understanding of God. And it's kind of a dramatic conversion, or a particular point in time. It may not even be that dramatic. You can point to the point in time where you committed your life to Christ, where the Holy Spirit entered you in a fresh way, and you were born again. That's my story, not having been brought up in a Christian family. Um, and so there's that moment, um, I can tell you. I won't tell you the date because it'd give away all my bank passwords. But uh, it's, uh, it is a, a date that's very, very significant to me. For other people, well, sorry, and the, and the classic example in the scriptures is Saul, or Paul, uh, in his confrontation with Christ on the road to Damascus, and uh, his life was completely turned around. A real God intervention. Uh, other people, though, many other people, experience more of a kind of a slow journey to con- conversion. Uh, perhaps you're brought up in a Christian family. And maybe there's no significant moment where you can say, I wasn't a Christian there and then I was a Christian. Um, It's kind of like a series of moments, perhaps significant moments. But I want to challenge all of us brought up in Christian families here that there are no grandparents in God's family. No spiritual grandparents in that sense, in the sense that uh, all of us have to have that step, that experience for ourselves. All of us have to come to that place of working out our faith for themselves. And I want to encourage the parents here, don't panic when your children get to a particular age and they start to question their faith. And again, I've seen this lots of times at Somerville. Um, And, you know, parents are a little bit worried, Christian parents. Oh, yeah, she's suddenly starting to say that maybe she's not sure about it. And it's like, that's okay. She's just working out whether this is her parents' faith or whether this is her own faith. And that's a step that all of us have to come to if we've been brought up in Christian families, working it out. Uh, for themselves. And this is very important because it, it's the only way that they can end up owning their faith for themselves. And I encourage pa- parents to give them the freedom, give your children the freedom to do that. It, it must be pretty scary. I'm not a parent, so I guess I'm, uh, you know, I'm speaking from lack of experience here. But you know, it, it's, it must be a scary thing to let your children go in that sense because you don't know where that's going to land. But there's nothing you can do about it because you can't manipulate them into making that commitment to Christ. You can expose them to all the right influences. um, And uh, I think, you know, there's so many great things you can do. Make sure with your teenagers that they're around, other teenagers, you know, who are strong in faith. Big plug for Cornerstone Youth here. Um, You know, and and people who are slightly older. Yeah, go Zeke. I mean, Zeke's a great role model, sort of. Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it's one of the most powerful things I know is to get them around other young people who are Christians or people just slightly older than them who are Christians because your influence is tremendous on your children. It's the greatest influence, um, but they need other people's influence too. So they need, they need to see other Christians. They need to know it's not just their family thing because it's a natural thing when you get to a certain age to start to you know, form your identity, not so much on your family, but having to kind of work out who you are apart from your family. So it's a challenge, um, but it's a necessity as well too. This idea of uh, being born again is one of the great mysteries of the faith. I mean, I've prayed with young people when they've become Christians, when they've made that commitment. You don't see anything. You don't suddenly hear the angels burst into the hallelujah chorus. Uh, although it does say in the scriptures that the angels rejoice in heaven when people become Christians, but it is a great mystery, and you, you know, you, we don't know exactly what's going on. And this is the wonderful thing about walking in the Spirit, as the verses say later on. Um, you know, we can't sort of control this, we can't uh, manipulate it, but we just go along with what God is doing and and in my experience again there's a number of different paths to come into uh, being a Christian one is through believing you know sometimes people are just so impacted by a message that they hear or something they read or a verse in the scriptures I remember a girl years ago who who I was running an ISCF group at Brisbane Girls Grammar School in those days and, and she would come along and argue with us and then eventually she came on a weekend camp with us and suddenly she was talking as though she was sort of on the same side and I said to her I think something's changed. What's happened? And she said, oh, she said, I, I used to argue with you against, about the Bible, but I realized I'd never actually read it, so I thought perhaps I should. So I opened up at John chapter 1, read the first 12 verses, and decided to become a Christian. Now, isn't that amazing? You know, like it's, oh, that's, a, that's one of my favorite passages. Um, it is a great passage. But, you know, sometimes it's through believing, just, you know, discovering something uh, and being impacted by the word that you hear. Sometimes it's by belonging." So you can come along to church, and we all know that in every church, there are people who haven't yet made that step. They're on the journey. Sometimes it's just by belonging, and that's why it's so important that we love each other and welcome new people and make people feel a part of who we are. It's that belonging that leads people eventually to embrace what's going on. And and that's been the heart of my youth ministry, I suppose, in schools, is schools are a great place for that to happen because you've got so many random people, and they don't want to sit by themselves at lunch if all their friends are going to the Christian fellowship group, so they come along too. And I've seen that in both BBC and Somerville, people become Christians through belonging, through being a part of the Christian group in their school. And then eventually they make that step for themselves. And the other one, it's an interesting one, is through behaving. People who kind of have this desire to do good, to do the works of God almost without being yet committed to God, and we had a great example of that at BBC, the, the Christian Fellowship Group ran the, um, uh, uh, the Salvation Army Red Shield Appeal, and there were boys who really were earnest about doing the right thing, and they wanted to help, and they thought that was a good cause, and they did, and as a result of that, they then got involved in the Christian Group and became Christians, so sometimes it's through behaving, through realising the fruits that God produces and wanting to be a part of that, but the thing is, it's an act of the Spirit, And just as when a woman goes into labor, it can't be stopped. When someone is wanting to become a Christian, you can't stop it. I remember some of our young leaders on camps that we went on saying, oh, you know, we want to stay up later at night to give them more of a chance to become a Christian. It's like, well, actually, let's see what they feel like in the morning. Because if it's the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, the, the broad light of day is not going to stop them becoming Christians. We don't have to manipulate anything. We don't have to set anything up. Sure, we create the opportunities, but it is the work of the Spirit. And uh, as I say, I've I've got one in my year 11 class right now. I'm just so excited about where where that's going to end. And even if I'm not very good at sharing the gospel, I believe that person will come into the kingdom because I could no longer stop it than push a baby back inside its mother. It's gross thought, isn't it? Absolutely gross. Uh, anyway, um, I'm going to ask Michelle to come up now and to share a little bit of her testimony. I heard uh, Michelle's testimony. I, I encourage you to ask her for the full story sometime, but I think her testimony is a great example of this thing of you just can't stop it when God is at work, and there's sometimes no human agency involved at all. So uh, ask her about the full story later on, but thanks for this uh, extract from your testimony, Michelle. Thank you.
1: Thank um... you. Yes, I found myself in my early 20s, Uh, I was a complete atheist and thought Christians were a bunch of crazies, no (laughs) offence, and now I'm one of you Um, and I um, found that both my parents um, were battling cancer um, and my dad was winning his battle but my mum was losing hers um, and Mum was easy to love, Dad, a bit harder to love. So um, when I was, um, Mum was living up at the Sunshine Coast, I decided to go and visit her because she had recently become a Christian herself. And um, I would read the Bible with her, but I didn't really have a good understanding. And then um, people would come and pray for her because she was um, struggling, you know, with the cancer battle. And so they would come and pray with her. And I would say, I'm out. I'm going for a walk, I don't want to stay here with the crazies, so, um, but then when I came back from my walk one day, one of them was still there, and they challenged me, why don't you come along to church and see what your mum's involved with, and of course, I was like, of course, I want to see how you're brainwashing her, so I came along to church, and I was sitting there, and the the fellow was chatting about the message, and I was like, hmm, yeah, hmm, um, and then, Right at the end, he asked a question and he said, does anybody here want to be water baptised? And in that moment, God showed up. He, obviously not audible, not visible, but the presence of God just hit me like a Mack truck. And essentially, the challenge was, I am real and you need to follow me. And I knew in that moment, this was the the single most important decision of my life and I knew it and I knew I couldn't say no and I just in that moment I heard my mum scream she was sitting next to me and my auntie which is my mum's sister scream also and I looked over and I had my hand in the air (laughs) so unbeknownst to me I wanted to be water baptized (laughs) so that night I found myself in some random person's place in Budrum who had a baptism tank and they dressed me in a white robe and um, I was, yeah, obviously knew nothing about Christianity, absolutely nothing. So I was ducked in this tank and baptised and I got up and I was really nervous and I'd forgotten to say my three hallelujahs, which were my instructions. (laughs) Um, And, of course, everyone was staring at me, so I said, has anyone got a hairdryer? Um, (laughs) So a bit awkward, Uh, rough crowd, didn't get a laugh. But anyway, um, so I ended up um, then um, uh, on the drive home uh, and I'd become a Christian um, and been water baptized um, all in the one night. And um, I said to mum, I think there's something wrong with me. I think I'm bleeding in my mouth because all I could taste was blood. So for an hour afterwards, all I could taste was blood. And I didn't even know why. Um, And it wasn't until three years later when I heard a sermon by Pastor Charles that I understood about the significance of being washed in the blood. So yeah, um, and I only described to people, I didn't have any language to use about being a Christian and I just described to people. It was like I was a pie with a piece missing and now I'm a whole pie. So yeah. That's my testimony. Good on
0: you, mate. Fantastic as you say, isn't it just great when, when God turns up? It's a great way to describe, describe it actually. And this work of the Holy Spirit of course we want more of that don't we? We want to see that. We want to see everybody put their hands up you know when uh, when we ask that question uh, it doesn't always happen. Uh, in actual fact um, as a person I'm probably a fairly unlikely Pentecostal. There's a sort of confession here. I hope this isn't going to get me kicked out or anything um, because I, I am really more of a head person than a heart person. I was a maths and science teacher um, and, and that's what I used to argue against my friends before I became a Christian. Um, but uh, you know, I am more of a head person, uh, and I, but these days I'm not of the opinion that one is more important than the other. Um, some people actually uh, ridicule human reason and theology, and say that it's sort of unspiritual. That if you rely on that, then it's very unspiritual. But I think I don't think that's the, the right balance. I think there's a balance here between the two. I mean, I've, I've heard people say, not in this church, not in this church, but I have heard people say, "Oh, I didn't really prepare much for this message. I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit lead." You know, uh, I think that's laziness, actually. Um, But I have heard that said before. Uh, It's a combination of both, isn't it? It is absolutely true. You do not need to be an academic to be a Christian. Um, But if you are going to engage with the world that we're involved in now, and if we really are, if we really do have a desire to make Christ known, and boy, I hope we do, um, you've got to be able to think through your faith, ask questions, uh, and make sense of it. Uh, and when I first became a Christian at the age of about 16, I asked lots and lots and lots of questions, probably drove people up the wall. But I wanted answers, and it's been incredibly helpful. I, I'm, you know, We need to be both head and heart people. I am so proud that we have Pastor Dwayne and Josh and Paul, uh, people who are men with great you know, thinking abilities in our congregation, and lots of women too, I'm sure, but people who are academics uh, in that sense in the Christian faith, and yet hugely spiritual men as well too. We are richer for it. In our congregation that we have both that we esteem both and that we honor both um, using your brain doesn't negate the work of the spirit um, it says Peter says in his epistle always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you and uh, giving those reasons is an important thing but the thing about Pentecostalism that I love and I suppose the thing that drew me to Pentecostalism originally even though know, it was pretty wild and crazy back then in the late '70s uh, is that we kind of expect God to show up in our services don't we now, I used to go to CLC back in the late 1970s, and I was very young, very, very young, and um, the early 80s. And, uh, you know, we used to sing this song. I mean, you had to get there early. The first seven rows were people had their handbags and their coats and everything on it. You couldn't get in the front of the row because we expected God was going to turn up. We, we sang this great song, and I've got a few CLC compatriots here. Um, you know, something good is going to happen. Something good is in store we're together again, just praising the Lord. There was that sense of expectation. And even my early Pentecostal journey wasn't a typical one. I was baptized in the Spirit at an Anglican church, of all places, that was undergoing renewal up at Maroochydore. But there was a move of God through the youth group there. To the extent, and those of you that know Year 9 girls, or perhaps have had one once, um, you know, they're an interesting creature. Um, <laughs> But they, they had a sleepover. It was somebody's birthday, and they decided, you know, because the Holy Spirit had been moving, they would sort of try out to see what gifts of the Spirit they had. So they're busy <laughs> experimenting. Um, and somebody had the gift of tongue, so they figured somebody must have interpretation. Who is, who's got interpretation? Anyway, off it went. And I just thought, wow, you know, when I met these girls, and uh, at that stage I was in year 12, I think, knowing what year nine girls are like, I thought, wow, that's pretty amazing. Um, but the spirit is so the spirit is unpredictable verse 8 in that passage says the wind blows wherever it wishes you hear the sound it makes but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going it is like that with everyone who is born of the spirit ain't that the truth you know god just does amazing things like michelle had no intention of um, <laughs> putting a hand up, and there it was. It was up in the air. Um, and that's, that's the sort of thing that the Holy Spirit will do sometimes. Now, back in the late 70s, we may have taken that a little too literally in our movement, and there were a few crazy things that went on. But, uh, you know, we, we now, I, th- I think we have a balance, a great balance of head and heart in our movement. It is great, though, to be reminded that God is God and we are not. We cannot in any way control what the Spirit wants to do, and neither should we try to. And that is really good for someone like me who likes to be in control. You might remember uh, a sermon I preached a few years ago um, about the lesson that I learned in COVID. Remember that lesson I was perhaps supposed to learn, you know, uh, the unmasking of my false sense of mastery and autonomy. Well, I'm still learning that lesson. Uh, I'm still working on it. And, I, you know, I like to be in control, but that is not the Holy Spirit. We have to be ready uh, to, to just go with what the Spirit is doing. Pastor Joshua a couple of weeks ago uh, alluded to a, a thing that's going on at the moment in the States. I'm not even sure where it's up to at the moment, but a little a localized revival in uh, a college called Asprey. Uh, it's quite extraordinary. It's a, a college, a tertiary college, uh, and it, there's no particular thing, no sort of dramatic sermon or... 50 years of continuous prayer or something that started it off but God has just decided to show up there and there are hundreds and thousands of people coming to that college chapel and they're having to manage the whole thing and I think we look at that and we think oh yes I want that Uh, I've got a lady who's praying for revival at Somerville bring it on I may lose my job but that's okay you know that's all right but I'm praying for revival um we want to see that happen, don't we? We want to see that everywhere. We want to see the move of the Spirit, but we can't make it happen. We can't manufacture it. It's interesting at Asprey, there's been a number of kind of big-name Christian people who've tried to come along and sort of take it over and, you know, gym in a bit and sort of jump on the coattails, but it's not like that. These are ordinary, unknown, relatively unknown Christian people who are involved in this that God is using. Uh, we, want to, we want to see it happen, but we cannot manufacture it. So what do we do in the meantime? What are we to do? I think we are to pray, yes. Pray for a revival, a move of God's spirit. Uh, And lots of revivals have started after much prayer. We make plans in our church program, in our church services, um, but we hold them lightly if God does show up and things kind of go in a different direction. We hone within ourselves as individuals and ourselves as a group the art of listening to God and we extend a careful balance of grace and wisdom as we let people share what they believe God is saying to them. Okay, So we want to grow in that area, listening to God and uh, sharing what what he's saying to us. We create space for God to speak to us, just as we're doing at our cellar nights, uh, uh, our worship nights here at Cornerstone, a wonderful thing. We, and then we faithfully preach the word, we pray, we worship, we care for each other, we exercise the gifts of spirit of the Spirit until God directs us in more specific ways. So that's how we prepare for it. We don't sort of sit back and wait, oh yes, I'll get involved when revival comes. No, no, it's not like that. Let's get on with uh, the, the work of God now uh, in his strength um, a bit while we're waiting for that to happen. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the last part of this passage as we then lead into um, communion and the band. I won't sort of get you to do the same thing twice and come up a little bit early, but just, just hold, hold fire. I know you're very keen. Uh, but the last bit there, that G, where Jesus talks, he says, um, uh, "Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life." Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but uh, I'll just read this bit for you. It's from the book of Numbers. It's an amazing story and an amazing gospel precursor, I believe. From Mount Hor, they set out. This is the Israelites in the desert um, after they'd left Egypt. From Mount Hor, they set out by way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. They were good at that. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. That's the miraculous manner that was turning up every morning. You know, miracles really don't necessarily bring us closer to God in the end. Uh, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. amazing story so the people are traveling through the desert and they lose patience with God because it's taking them a long time to get to the promised land and God sends these poisonous snakes which bit them and they died I have to say just a little comment here it tells us something about how seriously uh, God takes sin okay sin the heart of sin is not murder or hate or even lack of love some people think that love is the ultimate opposite of sin Um, sin is really putting ourselves in the place of God that's what sin is about, deciding that we know better. Uh, so, you know, the people complained against God. You don't know what you're doing, God. We're here out in the desert. We're going to die, etc., etc. So these poisonous snakes came. God's judgment was very swift in those days. God's judgment will come in our day too. It's just he tarries so that as many as possible may come to know him. So these poisonous snakes uh, bit the people. Uh, so the people turned back to God. Um, it's a bit of a pattern in the Old Testament. And they ask him to take the snakes away. Now, interestingly, God doesn't take the snakes away, but he provides a way for them to be saved from dying. All they had to do was look at the bronze snake and they were healed. Very simple, really. No sacrifices, no acts of contrition, no whatever. Um, They had to look at the bronze snake and they were healed. And I I think uh, there's nothing magic about the snake It was all about taking God at his word and doing what he said, looking to God. And now I will invite the band to come up and get ready as we lead into communion. This passage is a very powerful parallel to believing in Jesus, to being born again, to moving from spiritual death to eternal life. Exactly what Nicodemus was asking Jesus about all those years ago. Like the Israelites, we fail to trust God. We question him. We think we know better. And as I said, the heart of sin is putting ourselves in the place of God. That's what Adam did, Adam and Eve. They thought they knew better. They'd listen to the talking snake rather than God uh, about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And from Adam and Eve onwards, we have done this and the punishment, as we know, is spiritual death. We mightn't die like the Israelites died uh, in the desert or there'd be nobody alive. Um, you know, we, but the punishment is spiritual death. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And later on in Romans, the, the wages of sin are death. And the free gift of God is eternal life. So it's spiritual death. And that's that idea of being born twice so that you only die once. Um, if you're only born once, you'll die spiritually as well as physically. It's separation from God, a breakdown in that relationship. The Israelites turned back to God and were truly sorry and asked Moses to pray that they would be saved. He didn't take away their sin, but he made a way whereby they could be rescued. And in the same way, we don't suddenly become perfect when we become Christians. I have heard testimonies, genuine testimonies, of people immediately set free of various things in their life when they become a Christian, maybe of an addiction to something. Um, But lots of us just keep struggling with those areas that are sin. But the thing is, there is a way by looking to Jesus and it's looking to Jesus, not a bronze snake, looking to Jesus where we will be healed, where we'll be forgiven, we'll be born again of our sin. Those people back there in the desert, they might have thought when Moses said that, that's stupid, that's just a bronze snake on a pole. We saw you make it. And maybe they didn't bother looking at it. But people and people today don't necessarily have time for Jesus and the gospel message. But we know that looking to Jesus uh, is is the, the the solution to our sin problem. And when God looks at us, if we've trusted in Jesus, instead of seeing our messed up life with all that sin that we continue to do, it's like Jesus' record of perfect life is pasted over our life, our page, record of our sins. It's so extensive in. Case. I'm sure many people's case as well. But you, you, you paste, it's like Jesus' record has been pasted over mine so that when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. He treats me just as if I'd never sinned. What a blessing. There's nothing the Israelites could do to save themselves. They had to look to the snake. Uh, In the same way, we have to look to Jesus to turn to him to have faith. We know that turning over a new leaf and having New Year's resolutions and all of that sort of thing doesn't get us very far without God's help. It's not by being good. It's not by following any particular ritual that we're saved and born again. It's by having faith in what he has done. And... I finish with that wonderful, best known of all Christian verses. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Can I encourage you, uh, when we finish after the communion, um, I'm going to hang back. Anyone who wants to talk about any of this stuff, it would be my pleasure and my privilege to talk with you about it. Um, And don't be embarrassed, don't be ashamed. Doesn't matter who sees you coming out for prayer. It's a great thing to do, to, to look to God. And to see what he has done for you and to believe in what he's done. So Jesus in his death on the cross, as we remember in communion today, took upon himself our sin. And that is what we remember as we share the bread and the juice today. I'll just give the stewards a moment. If you don't have a communion pack with you at the moment, just put your hand up and they'll bring one down to you. I'll give them a couple of minutes, but it's such a, such a privilege and such an important thing that we do together, a solemn thing, and we do it regularly, we do it a lot, but let's never forget the enormity of what we are, what, what, what we're doing represents, and that is the broken body of Jesus as he was twisted out of shape there on the cross. Crucifixion was torture. It was a terrible way to be executed because it meant every, pretty much every bone, every joint in your body was twisted, dislocated out of shape. His body was broken and of course his blood was shed as they stuck that sword into him as they nailed his hands and feet to the cross. His blood was shed for us and that is what our communion represents today.